Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Captain Richard Andrews, owner of Tarpam Guide Service. Richard shares his experiences growing up in eastern North Carolina and the great angling opportunities found in the inner banks. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. Just days ago, our friends at Norvice released their shank jaws to make tying large, articulated streamers even easier. To see for yourself, visit www.nor-vice.com. Don't delay. Supplies are limited. Now, on to our interview. Well, Richard, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks for having me, Marvin. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, other than some really early memories of just catching bass in some farm ponds around home uh, in eastern North Carolina, I do have one memory that really sticks out and probably helped shape my life. Uh, I was fishing a uh, Hatteras Marlin Club tournament. I was probably in about fifth or sixth grade with a, with a, my next door neighbor. Uh, his dad had a sport fishing boat and, uh, they were avid marlin fishermen. And, um, and I was, I just really took a liking to it early on. And, uh, we were out there trolling around one day, had spread out beautiful day and everybody was inside asleep. And I was the only one out there watching the bait because I was the one that was kind of the most into it. And, uh, I saw this little, small little peanut dolphin just kind of loping through the spread and you know, there's a little guy about five five pounds or so i said oh that's kind of weird he was just hopping along like skipping on top and about 30 seconds later we had a spanish mackerel skipping down the middle on the, on the short shotgun bait and uh about a 600 pound blue marlin came flying out of the water i mean literally you know from he went vertical out of the water and ate that mackerel and saw the whole fish's body. Uh, fish got hooked and just kind of snapped his head back and forth and uh, frayed that 400-pound leader like it was nothing. Um, and, but I got to see all of them. And that, from that moment on, I was just intrigued with the adventure of fishing. And I think I think really that memory might have helped shape my my career a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so it is tell us a little bit, because I mean, people that like to fish in salt water are really drawn to the salt. What drew you to saltwater fishing? Well, I was drawn, after I graduated from college, I was drawn to the Outer Banks to uh, work on the back of uh, offshore charter boats. So like literally the day after I graduated from uh, college, I moved down to Hatteras and started working on a, started hitting the docks down there at Hatteras Harbor and Odin's Dock and, and finally got a job on a on a boat down there and worked, worked on that boat for the summer. And that turned into a, that turned into a, like a six year stint of working on the offshore charter boats year round full time. And, uh, and that really, you know, that early memory and kind of just an early interest in offshore fishing kind of drew me down there. And I've, I've evolved kind of into the fly fishing game into the inshore saltwater game from that. So a lot of people will start out catching small fish and then, kind of evolve into catching bigger fish in bigger water, but I've gone the exact opposite direction. 
interesting. So when did you exactly come to the dark side of fly fishing? Well, I I went to school in Virginia, high school in Virginia, and the school that I went to had a, uh, a smallmouth river adjacent to it. And um, so I, I started fly fishing there when I was in high school. We would, you know, pop a bug fish and streamer fish for smallies. It was the Rapidan River, and uh, and it was actually a really good smallmouth river. So that's where I started fly fishing. Uh, and I kind of took that and just learned from there as I went. And it's just evolved into, you know, caught some uh, fish on the fly, some billfish on the fly when I was offshore fishing. And um, just started poking around around home on the rivers, catching stripers, catching shad, uh, catching speckled trout, doing what I do now. And have really learned that there's a lot of opportunities for fly fishing in our area. Yeah. And speaking of what you do now, you know, when did you know you wanted to become a charter captain? Um, well, my original intent when I was offshore fishing was to become an offshore charter boat captain. And so I was, I was heavily involved with that. You know, I was in the thick of that for the longest time. And, um, when I was doing it, it was 20 years ago and there was, uh, you know, diesel fuel hit 350 a gallon for the first time. And I was watching these, uh, these kind of owner operator guys down there at, at Organelle and Hatters, uh, becoming the, the industry changed tremendously. They were, uh, these owner operators were becoming um, paid employees by owners. You know, these uh, these wealthy owners were buying these boats and and upgrading these boats and paying these captains to run them for them. So I didn't like that part of the business, and I just thought the writing on the wall was just hard to it's hard to make a living doing that. And um, so I really started getting more interested in inshore fishing and kind of evolved into the inshore game uh, from that. Yeah, and so how long did it kind of take you to break into the guide game on the inshore fishing? Well, I've done it off and on, you know, throughout my life, but um, I really had to just start it, and I mo- we moved to the inner banks. Uh, we, you know, we wanted to live, when I met my wife, we wanted to live uh, in, in Washington, North Carolina, so we moved to Washington, and I, I figured that'd be a great place to start a inshore guide service, so we came here, and... Um, I started working part-time for one of the, the river people organization here, which was, was called the Pamlico Tall River Foundation at the time. And now it's called Sound Rivers. But I worked for them Monday through Friday and then uh, was guiding Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so I did that for about two to three years like that. And then eventually I started getting real busy doing what I was doing guiding and had to give up the other job and started guiding full-time. So it's uh it all worked out, and little did I know at the time that um, this area was just really well suited for a year-round guide service. I mean, I could not pick a better place to set, set up camp. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, who are some of the folks, Richard, that have mentored you on your guide journey, and what did they teach you? Well, all this, all the fishing here has been more self-taught, um, just simply putting time on the water and just doing a lot of fishing on my own when I wasn't booked. and. But early on, I mean, the offshore fishing that I did at the, at the beach, uh, that was, you know, I worked for, uh, I worked in and around some of the, you know, for some of the best, and around some of the best captains in the business. And, uh, you know, I just saw how dedicated they were to their, to their fishing game and what they were willing to do to catch fish and their work ethics. And that just really translated into, that could have, could have been better, a better preface to what I do now. Just learning, learning that a, a nine to five job is not normal. Like we you can know, put in more time than needed, uh, getting up early, just making it happen and just putting in that extra effort for the client. It got it. And, you know, we always ask all of our, um, 
our guide guests on the Articulate Fly to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide? I, well, I mean, my clients all the time look at me and, and say, you've got the greatest job ever. It just must be so much fun being a fishing guide. And I love what I do. It's a, it's a wonderful job. And I, I really don't want to do anything else. I, I mean, I feel so blessed to do what I do. However, the biggest misconception is that it's easy. It's such a it's such a tough job. There's a lot that goes into it. You're running a lot of logistics, a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, a lot of maintenance. You're just you're doing it all too. If, if you're an owner operator, you know single guide, you're doing all the booking, all the reservations, running the business, coming home, getting ready for the next day. Something breaks, you have to fix it that next day, that that afternoon to get ready for the next morning. It's just a it's an around the clock job, and you. I'll tell anybody who's interested in doing it, you know, it's a great thing to get into, but you better be prepared to work and you better really, really love. It. Yeah. And speaking of be prepared, you know, you know, you've grown, um, you know, from just yourself to now you have Tarpam Guide Service. Tell us a little bit about how that came together and a little bit of uh, your guide company's history. Well, we started in 2010 and um, it was just me and I, um, you know, slowly got busier and busier and busier and, you know, about, after about four years, I started really hitting my stride and really running a lot of trips. And you know, now we fish about I fish about two hundred and thirty days a year, which is about all I really want to do. It gives me some Sundays off and some holidays off. And um, you know, I could probably fish more than that, but I, I'd just be missing out on a lot of family activities and that sort of thing. I have two boys and a wonderful wife, so I need to spend time with them. But um, you know, we've got other guys. There's I have four other people that I can give trips to that kind of work underneath me uh we, we have a, i have another boat and they usually run my other boat for me kind of on a rotational basis or as needed basis and that helps to alleviate some of the um the workload that i have and, and help us with manage some of our overflow which we can continue to expand our client base without turning people away yeah very neat and i know that you you know you have a mix of light tackle and fly you know how does that break down and you know how does that translate into different fishing approaches well we try to be flexible um it really just depends on what the clients want i mean we have clients that want to do fly only we have clients that are willing to mix it up you know they'll start out spin fishing or you know and then grab a fly rod which when we really locate you know some schooled up fish uh we have people that don't want to fly fish at all so we kind of try to cater to everybody and i started out that way just being real flexible but as we've gotten you know kind of evolved over the years we are starting to cater more towards fly fishermen uh because we have discovered that this fishery is just tremendous fly fishery i mean we can catch anything that we catch on a on conventional gear on fly it's just having the right situation um having the right conditions uh having the right fly line is important um just for whatever depth you're fishing because we do we do we, we have a tremendous variety here we will fish in the estuary and, and shallow water and sometimes the deeper water and this is water that's not moving very fast it doesn't have a whole lot of current because we don't have lunar tide in this estuary it's all wind tide driven and sometimes we may be up a, up a coastal river fishing in the current fishing in a deep deep fast moving river so huge variety in how we how we fly fish um and sometimes it's just not suitable um you know we can sit there and catch 80 or 100 fish on conventional gear when we might not even hardly be able to get a bite on a fly and that's tough when i have one of those clients that's just hell-bent on uh you know 
keeping a fire in his hand all day. And I know we could we could just burn him up on conventional gear, but but you know we just try to cater to what what the what the client wants to do and and just kind of be realistic about what we can accomplish out there on any given day, and and usually it works out. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview, you know, that you kind of luckily picked probably the perfect place to set up a year round. Um, guide business. Can you tell us a little bit about the inner banks and how it's different from other inshore fisheries? Well, we have, you know, what I call our big four saltwater species, which is our speckled trout, redfish, flounder, and striped bass. Those are pr- primarily what I target. Um, and we have those mostly in the estuary, but we also have our, our coastal rivers, which have a, have a huge population of striped bass, uh, in the winter time and the spring when they spawn, uh, so we have those species kind of in both areas. We have some other species that come in, like our giant redfish. They come in the spawn in August and September into the Pamlico, and we also have some tarpon that move in in the summer. I don't do much tarpon fishing, but there's some guys who do. Um, and then, of course, we have a ton of freshwater species in our our estuarine creeks. See, our our creeks here have a salinity gradient. So as you go up in the tributaries, you'll the backs of the tributaries, the front of the creeks may be pretty salty, and then you'll go to the back and you'll start picking up freshwater species like you know, pumpkin seed brim, largemouth bass, bowfin, gar, uh, crappie, white perch, um, things like that. So it's not uncommon for us to go kind of target our big four, I call it, and then move into a creek and, and catch freshwater species. Uh, we could, I mean, we've had trips where we'll catch 10 or 12 different species of fish in one day. Yeah, very neat. And, it, and you know, for listeners that aren't familiar with this type of ecosystem, can you tell people why these estuary systems are so incredibly productive? Well, first and foremost, they're, they're nursery areas for juvenile fish. So we have, you know, that's where a lot of our saltwater species spawn, and, they, and they're the young the young fish, you know, live here until they become old enough to either, like for striped bass, let's, let's take striped bass as an example. They're born in our rivers, they're spawned in our rivers, and then they, they grow up here for about the first five years of their life. If they make it to age five or six, they immigrate out out of the estuary to the ocean. They join the ocean population, the, the Atlantic Ocean population, which migrates up and down the eastern seaboard. And then when they, when, if they, you know, they, and they continue to return as the females at least to spawn in the river where they were born, just like salmon. So they live here year round in the estuary or in the rivers for the first few years of their life. And then they, they join a, a totally separate population of fish out of the ocean. And, you know, redfish do that too. Um, there's a lot of migration in and out of our, our inlet associated with the estuary. And, it's just a really dynamic system. It's just, it's uh, I'd say it's the second largest estuary in the country next to the Chesapeake Bay, but it's not tidal. We have tide areas behind the inlets, and it's really only behind the inlets. Um, when you go down to the southern Pamlico Sound, where the Pamlico Sound meets the Core Sound near Cedar Island, North Carolina, that's where the the, the ecosystem changes. You, you kind of lose that wind tide estuary and it becomes more of a tidal salt marsh system from there south so we're up here in the wind tide estuary and they're down there you know from cedar island south in the tidal salt marsh 
which is a totally just it's a totally different system. It fishes differently. They have the same species, but it's just a, a whole lot different in a lot of ways. Yeah, got it. And, you know, obviously people are, I'm sure, familiar with the challenges in the Chesapeake Bay. Are there any ecological challenges or any kind of uh, other fishery challenges that you want to let folks know about? Well, not not unlike anywhere else. We've had our, our sets of challenges over the years. Uh, back in the 80s, we had, you know, nutrient problems uh, where we have al- al- algal blooms in the estuary, called, you know, mostly caused by farm runoff. Uh, from, you know, confined animal feeding operations, whether it's hog or, or poultry, uh, but also just row crop farming. So we have, you know, Eastern North Carolina has a tremendous amount of farming, and a lot of our <clears throat> creeks have been channelized. You know, historically they were wetland systems up at the headwaters, and now they're, you know, you go up to the head of a creek, and instead of turning into a big old swamp, it just it's just turns into a huge canal. And it's draining, might be draining, uh, one creek might be draining, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 acres of farmland. So we've got inputs coming from the farms. Um, of course, we have stormwater runoff from our municipalities upriver. But, no, you know, no, no problems that are not unique to any, any other system. Got it. And I know you're involved with the Pamlico Tar River Foundation to kind of address some of those issues and keep an eye on the watershed. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do for them? Well, I just, I used to work for them, but uh, I just kind of, I, I work with them now, just telling them if I see something wrong. Um, they're, they're doing some good work these days. Um, they're really just, they're really just our watchdogs for our system, and they have a lot of battles. I mean, they're fighting proposed mines, and there was a limestone mine that was going to go in uh, at the headwaters of one of our creeks here, Blunt's Creek, off the Pamlico River, and they fought that battle, and they won. They, they, they delayed that, at least, so. They have a ton of, of stuff on their plate. But when I see something on the water, I try to let them know about it and try to help them in that way. Um, but they're really your organization. We need them around. Um, they also, the CCA is very active in um, North Carolina. They, they've been doing some good work trying to fight some of these um, fisheries conservation battles that we're working on. And North Carolina is just a, a really backwards state for fisheries management. We've had lots of uh just lots of favorites towards the commercial industry and i'm not against commercial fish i like fresh seafood uh but it's it's just ridiculous it's, it's to the point where the state is just almost unfriendly to recreational fishermen so it's it's it's, it's a very hard place to do business in that in that regard but despite that we still have great fishing and I'm able to have a good business so i'm lucky in that in that aspect but we have a lot of fights on our hands and this I wish I wish North Carolina could get, you know, on board with what what a lot of the other states have done. If they could do that, our fishing would be second to none. It would just be incredible. So we have great fishing, but could it be better? Absolutely. And, and are some of those issues I you know, I, I don't follow the saltwater uh conservation issues as closely, but I assume it's probably maybe around striped bass and I think gill netting has been an issue. What are some of the issues that um, we're a little bit different than other places up and down the mid-Atlantic? Well, there's four, in my opinion, there's four main issues. One, we have inshore trawling that occurs in the Pamlico Sound, and there's a ton of ton of bycatch associated with that. Um, you know, to catch a pound of shrimp, there's been good scientific studies to, sh- to show that three to four or five to five pounds of bycatch are caught for every pound of shrimp. 
tremendous amount of waste. And these are juvenile predator spots, great trout, flounder, crabs, and assortment of other species. Um, that's number one. Number two is our, is our insured gill netting. Uh, there's just a lot of waste associated with that, too. Um, it's just non-selective a lot of times. Even though they say it is, it's just not as selective as they, they make it out to be. Um, the third thing is commercial fishing licenses. We've got a lot of licenses out there, um, and there's a lot of – and not – not all the, only a, a small portion, or maybe even half or a third. I'm, I'm not, I couldn't quite say the exact number of all those licenses are, are real full time professional commercial fishermen. So there's like you know a lot of guys that have like a lawn service. You know they photograph during the week and then they go set gillnets on the weekend, that sort of thing. That needs to go away. Um, you know commercial fishing license reform needs to be looked at seriously. Because um, they can't really account for what's being taken out of the system, so that's an issue. Another issue is the fact that we have dual agencies managing our resource. We've got the Wildlife Resource Commission, which is in charge of our our hunting and our inland fisheries, our freshwater fishes, and then we have the Division of Marine Fisheries, which is in charge of managing our coastal fisheries. So we've got two different agencies that don't necessarily see eye to eye. That have different conservation ethics as well. Um, the division tends to be a lot less conservation oriented than the Wildlife Resources Commission, and they thus they are usually under a lot more criticism from the recreational community. Um, so if we can get those agencies combined under one, it'd be a lot more efficient. It would save us. It would save the taxpayers a lot of money uh, from an, just from a management standpoint and a law enforcement standpoint. So we've got we've got some issues here. Um, you know, every state has issues. In my eyes, those are the biggest issues that we have. And if we can get some of those under control um, and have a change, our fishery would be potentially huge. I mean, we'd be, we'd be right there with Florida or Louisiana easily. Well, you know, I'm a little bit biased because I have family from Eastern North Carolina. I know you grew up there. At, but, you know, for my listeners, Richard, who don't live in Eastern North Carolina or who have never visited, can you tell us a little bit about the region's flavor? Yeah, Eastern North Carolina is definitely a unique area. I grew up here in Tarboro on the Tar River, so just upriver where I live now, which is in, which is in Bath. Uh, but it it's a great place. Um, a lot of farming. Uh, our, our, that's our biggest industry here is farming. Uh, a lot of fishing. Um, but we have, you know, a lot of our lifestyle in Eastern North Carolina, especially on the rivers, is dictated by our fish migration. Um, like right now, we're getting ready. We just started our shad run for the year. And there's uh there's an old saying in Tarboro, it's not March Madness, it's March Shadness. So when March Shadness arrives, everybody's out and about on the river catching shad. We have a tremendous run of hickory and American shad that come up the tar, as well as the noose, the Roanoke, and the Cape Fear. Um, the Roanoke's probably the highest has the highest numbers of shad, but uh. Um, the other rivers are really good too. So we have, we have a shad run in March, late February, March. We have a striped bass run after that, where they come to spawn in April and May. So yeah, a lot of our, our lifestyle is here is dictated by the hunting and fishing season. Waterfowl hunting is huge. There's a lot of that that goes on in my immediate area here. Um, but it's just a great place to live. It's very laid back. Um, 
you like laid back small town lifestyle around that has great hunting and fishing resources and Eastern Oklahoma is a great place to live. Yeah. If you like barbecue, hush puppies and sweet tea too, right? Only barbecue with vinegar based off. That's, 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 that's the only real barbecue in our, in our, in our book. Yep. And no red slaw. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a Western North Carolina thing. Yeah. But no, Eastern, Eastern North Carolina is a great place. And so is, so are the mountains of North Carolina. I'd say, so we've got two great parts of the state and a lot, a lot of stuff sandwiched between them. But, uh, but we've, you know, really North Carolina is a, a very diverse state. We're, we're very blessed here. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched a little bit on your striper fishing and, you know, I guess you've kind of got two separate striper games, right? Cause I think your winter striper fishing is very different than what you're getting ready to gear up for here for the spring. You want to tell folks a little bit about that? Yeah. Our winter season runs roughly from December through the pre-spawn period, which would be uh, late March, early April. Um, those are, we're just targeting resident striped bass in the lower river systems. Uh, they, they use the, our lower coastal rivers as, when I say lower coastal rivers, I'm talking about the Noose River above Newburn, the Tar River above Washington, and the Roanoke River itself, the flowing portion of the Roanoke River from the mouth up. So they use the lower middle sections of these rivers winter grounds, and they run around and feed all winter long. So we're chasing after those schooled up fish, and, and the Roanoke is probably the king of them all as far as numbers goes. We catch... Uh, you know, on a, on a slow day up there, we'll catch 20, 30, 40 fish. Um, when it's really fishing well, we'll not uncommon at all to, to catch 100 or more in a, in a trip. I mean, sometimes 150, 200. It's just big schools of fish. Uh, so we're hunting those down in the winter. Now in the spring, the fish migrate up to their spawning grounds um, on the various rivers. And that's all water temperature driven. They usually start to move up the rivers as the water temperatures climb in the high 50s and low 60s as it warms up and they'll spawn around most of the time around uh 66 to 68 degree water and so peak spawning usually occurs in our rivers somewhere between usually the first two weeks between the end of april and the middle of may somewhere in there it's, it's a moving target every year but that's usually when they fish spawn so we fish them all winter we fish them up to the pre-spawn period we fish them during the spawn on our spawning ground and then after they spawn they'll come back down the rivers some of them will linger up on the spawning grounds and kind of in the middle section of the rivers and we'll, we'll fish them there as well but they tend to congregate back on the lower end post-spawn like late may and early june so we you know striper fishing pretty much takes me from the holidays all the way through the winter and the spring until about the late part of May. And then that's when I move into my um, Pamlico fishing for the uh, what I call a mixed bag, which is the speckled trout, redfish, flounder, sometimes striped bass as well. So I spent about half of my year on the on the rivers chasing stripers and shad, and I spent about the other half on, in the estuary chasing the other fish. Got it. And in terms of, you know – you know, from a fly tackle and fly approach, how are you fishing for the stripers? Well, it depends on where we are. Um, we catch them in, for, you know, in the estuary, we'll, we'll, a lot of times we'll catch them in three to six feet of water with no current. So we're using, if, if, they're, if they'll hit poppers, we'll, we'll catch them on poppers on top. We do that a lot in the 
summer, uh, or any, any time it's warm, really, that top water game is is a uh, is a is an option. Uh, but if we're if they're subsur- feeding subsurface and not heading up on top, we'll we'll use just a sink tip line, like a short a short sink tip, like a ten foot sink tip, um, and so that the fly will get down in the water column fast if we're kind of moving on the boat and, and trying to cover water. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it'll just get down, and then we just start stripping it in. We don't have to wait on it too long. Or so, in some cases, we may even use an intermediate uh, line. It just all depends on what depth we're in. Um, now, if we're up in the rivers, we'll fish uh, sink tip lines, but they're 30-foot leg core lines, like a full – they're not really called full sinking lines, but they're more of a striper line. It's a 30-foot sinking line with an intermediate running line. So um, – in some cases, we'll use up to a 450 grain. Like in the Roanoke River, where it's deep, up and welding, where the water's fast on the spawning ground, we throw a 450 a lot, and that that's what it takes to get to get the, uh, the fly down to them. Got it. And do you have any favorite flies? Well, I mean, the, the articulated flies, of course, are great, great catching flies. Um, stripers aren't too picky. If you get it in front of their face and twist it, they'll usually eat it. Uh, we use a lot of clousers. Uh, I've used a lot of times. I'll rig a clouser in tandem. You know, I'll have a dropper, and I'll have two clousers about a foot apart, foot and a half apart. And when you twist them, they'll kind of dance. And so we do that a lot when we're fishing the estuary. Uh, and out of the current, we'll we'll catch. Sometimes we'll catch two stripers on on on, the, on one rod. Uh, we'll catch a striper or a redfish or sometimes a striper and a, and a speckled trout or a speckled trout and a redfish. We call every combination of fish there is on, on, on one fly and on the other. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I, I, we've been, we've, we started using that a lot and it's, it's been real effective. Um, but if we're in bigger fish, you know, like you know, 25 and 30 inch reds and stripers, you don't want a double because it's hard to handle. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Single fly is going to work better. But yeah, I sort of use a lot of the game changers. They're, they're working really well for me. Um, they really respond well to them. But we, we certainly like top water. If, if we can catch them on top, we'll throw a popper or a crease fly. Yeah, and so do they like get turned on to cicadas? I mean, do you have like the uh, the annual cicadas down in your part of the world? Is that what they're trying to get when they eat on top? Usually when they're eating on top, they're either chasing menhaden on top. like they're, They push bait up to the surface and they're you can see birds on them and they're they're crashing through bait balls or they're chasing shrimp. A lot of times when our shrimp come out of our creeks in the summer and usually late June time frame, we'll have a shrimp migration where you start seeing the shrimp coming out of the creeks and they'll migrate out of the creeks into the main river and there'll be shrimp up and down the river shorelines out the Pamlico River. And a lot of times you can see the birds. The birds will be kind of hovering over top of them and You'll go over there and you'll see shrimp flying out of the water and stripers or trout or reds underneath them chasing shrimp. And they, 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 they'll eat a top water bait quickest when they're chasing shrimp. It's amazing. Yeah, very neat. And, uh, you know, you talked about kind of as it, things started to warm up, kind of moving back to kind of your grab bag fishing. You know, when do you start targeting puppy drum inshore? Uh, our puppy drum, we can catch our pu- puppy drum year round. Of course, they're tougher to catch in the, in the winter. Um, our our best puppy drum fishing tends to be in the spring, and then right on through the summer and in the fall. Which I would say, if, if I had to pick 
one of the best times for it would be the late summer and early fall, like August, September, October is, is a, probably pr- the three most prime puppy drum months we have. And then we'll catch them, depending on our weather in the fall, we'll catch them right on through the late fall, sometimes November, December. They tend to school up more in, in higher numbers as it gets colder, too. You'll see them in big, bigger groups. Got it. And is it a sight fishing game or is it, or is the water kind of deeper and a little bit murkier and it's not the kind of what people think of when they're in the Spartina grass, maybe say down in South Carolina? Yeah. So our water is, is not that clear. And so most of the time we're having to look for other clues to, to know, to know their fish there, like bait, bait abundance. You know, you get in the area where there's a lot of bait and you see the bait being chased or, you know, you know there's a lot of bait there, but you and you see a point where there's some current going around the point, some wind blowing current. Uh, those are types of places we key in on. We don't usually see the fish. There are some rare occasions with the redfish where we do see them up in some shallow water, some clear areas. But as as a whole, we do not do a lot of sight fishing here, just because we don't have the clarity of the water. Got it. And so are are they generally eating like small bait fish imitations and crab and shrimp imita- imitations? Most of, for reds, most of what I use is just a, a bait fish, a, tr- a streamer, a bait fish imitation. So you're talking about kind of, you could catch the puppy drum kind of year round, but you were saying it was kind of like the late summer, very, very early fall that those massive drum that everyone, you see these guys holding these massive drum in their laps. That's when you target those. Yeah. So there, there are two different groups of fish. So we have the, um, resident juveniles, you know, they might be, 10 inches long all the way up to 30, 32 inches long. Um, they're kind of like the stripers. Though. Once they re- reach a certain age, usually about age four, I think it might be roughly, they start to leave. But they don't hang around after that age. So we see them grow up to about 25 to 30 inch range. And after that, they're gone. They're out in the ocean. So they, they, it's just a habitat preference thing. They, they prefer to be out there with the adults once they, uh, once they reach that age. So we have the juveniles that are growing up here until they reach that age. And then we have the adults that return here in August and September to spawn. So our, our giant red, red drum season, which is a huge attraction, uh, starts in, we catch them as early as, well, I've caught them, I've caught some giant, we have some giant fish that actually some people think never leave. Um, that may, may be just a few residents. I've caught them as early as May and as late as December. But most of our consistent catches of those big fish is starts in July, like mid to late July, and a run into early October. And the peak fishing is probably from the middle of August through the end of September. Those fish are all typically over 40 inches, 40 to 50. We see them 40 to 52 inches with, with the vast majority of them probably being in the 44 to 49 inch range. You know, 50 incher is a really big one. And I've seen about the 52, but it's, it's, that's not an everyday fish. Right. And I assume they're out in deeper water. So how does that change the way you fish for them on the fly? Well, what we do with them, since we, unless they're up, up on top busting, which we see that sometimes they're up on top chasing bait. Uh, flying through the water, cutting across the top. We, we actually started seeing that more and more in the last few years. Um, so we're, we can actually sight fish them in a way. Um, but what we're typically doing is looking for bait up on top. 
bait balls, nervous bait balls up on the surface of the water. They're being pushed up by those drums. The drum are there. They're underneath them. But so what you're doing is you're throwing a fly into the bait ball, trying to get a bite, you know, trying to get the drum's attention, you know, somehow, whether it's a noisy, like a popping fly or a, just a streamer, something that could make, you know, get their attention. Um, and it's tough. Catching on the fly is hard, the big ones. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll use conventional gear and then when, when the situation presents itself, we'll, we'll throw a fly. And, and it, but you can catch them on a fly. It's, it's, it's challenging, but it's, but it can be done. Yeah, and I would imagine, do you upsize your fly compared to the bait to kind of try to, yeah, I guess, increase the chances that you capture their attention? Yeah, if you throw a, a streamer with a big profile through uh, a bait ball and twitch it aggressively, it's going to stand out. They're, they're going to see it. They're going to know it's there. It's just a matter of picking the right bait ball that has fish. And you might hit 10 bait balls and not get a bite, and then there's that one bait ball that you might hook two or three fish out of. So it's uh, it's, it's just a game of numbers. Um, and I, I mean, a great fly to use for this big drum is a musky fly, big articulated musky fly. If, if people, if I have people that can throw it in the wind, um, we'll do. We'll use those. We'll use big poppers. Um, anything that anything that uh, creates a lot of attention and noise, they like. Interesting. And of course, you can't talk about uh, fall in the inner banks without talking about false albacore fishing. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Richard? I'm not one of the hardcore alby guys. Like, there's there's guys that go down there for the whole alby season and alby fish, uh, but I do it. I, I offer it, and I have clients that want to do it, and I'll take them. Uh, so I get to do it just on the side, as, and but it's not my primary fall activity, but I absolutely love it. I'll, I'll go down to Harker's Island and put in there. And uh, when they're when they're really active up on top, it's not very it's not very difficult. You just have to have your you have to have your tackle right. There's not a whole lot of room for error, uh, and, they, and they can be quite picky. They're very size driven and color driven at times. So you need to have an assortment of flies that m- match whatever they're eating. Um, they can be real particular about the size of the flies. If it doesn't match the size of their bait, um, sometimes they'll they'll turn it down. But it's a it's an awesome fishery. It's one of the probably the premier uh, fly fisheries on the eastern seaboard. And I mean, I'm there when it's when it's when it's good. I'm down there doing it. Yeah. And so, when does the fall albacore season usually run? Usually, they start showing up in good numbers by about the end of September, early part of October. Kind of a moving target every year. But then um, <clears throat> it lasts through October and through November, and usually. If it's a late season, they might hang around till Thanksgiving or even like early December, but that's kind of rare. Usually, usually the two months that we think of for Albie season are October and November. And a lot of times the bigger fish are caught later in the season. You know, there's 18, 20 pound Albies come in November versus October. A lot of times early in the season, they're a little smaller. They might be those six pounders and eight pounders and 10 pounders, but sometimes they're in, they're in great numbers. Yeah, very neat. It's on my to-do list. I haven't gotten around to it yet. Well, we'll have to go do it sometime, Marvin. Yeah, you bet. So, uh, any? I think you mentioned we haven't talked about speckled trout. Are there any other species you want to talk about or that you chase that you want to let folks know about? Well, we, you know, like I said, the big four we target specks and uh, and redfish 
and flounder. Well, we don't catch, we don't do a lot of flounder, as much flounder fishing as we used to. Believe it or not, I have caught some flounder on the fly before. Uh, they will hit a clouser pretty, pretty readily or any kind of streamer. Um, but, uh, we used to do a lot more of that than we do now. And then, of course, the stripers. So, um, that's primarily what we target on fly. Um, and that keeps us busy year round. Absolutely. And why don't you let folks know what it's like to, uh, to be out on the water with you or one of your other guides for the day? Well, what we do is we, um, we have a lot, we have a lodge now in Bath that we built last year. This is a very rural area. Once you get, uh, too far east in our area, it just starts to get more and more rural. So, uh, places to stay is a, are a precious commodity. So we build a house in Bath where we, we house our, most of our clients and, and what, what they'll do is they'll meet us at the boat ramp in the morning, um, and we'll launch early and get going for a nice, exciting day of fishing. And usually, most of our people like to fish six hours. We offer four, six, and eight-hour trips, but they are by far our best-selling trip is a three-quarter day, six hours. Seems to be just the right amount of time on the water, not too much and not too short. Um, and it's just we start early, and then we, we're usually wrapping it up by early afternoon. Yeah, and I imagine the good thing too, right, is since you're not in a uh, a tidal system, you don't have to sit there and track the tide charts quite as closely as other people that guide on the salt do. No, we don't have to fish by the tides. We we fish early for well, one because it's, it's in the summer, particularly particularly it's more productive in the mornings, um, early before it gets too hot. But uh, the winds in our area we have a sea breeze that blows off the pamlico sound in the afternoons here and it it can get quite fast and quite tough uh and, and really just kind of wipe us all out late afternoon it's not uncommon at all by about two or three o'clock for it to be blowing 25 out of the southeast and it's nice because it cools everything down here a little bit and it blows right off the sound uh, blows up, up the rivers, which are most of our rivers are kind of ori- oriented roughly east west, and so the southeast sea breeze comes right in off the sound and cools everything off. But but we like to get out there and fish before that really gets kicking. Yeah, little little too much chop, right? Yeah, I don't do a lot of afternoon trips in the summer. It's just it's just usually just too windy. Yeah. Well, uh, before I let you hop tonight, Richard, why don't you let folks know the best places uh, online to follow your fishing adventures and how they can book a day with you? Well, we have um, a website, our website, www.tarpamguide.com. I I try to keep a fairly updated fishing report on my blog there. Um, And all the the information about what I do is on my website. Of course, we're on uh, Facebook and Instagram as well. You can find us easily on there. Um, and if you want to book a trip, the best way to do it is just shoot me an email at richard at tarfamguide.com or give me a call myself. And I promise I'll try to get back to you within a day. Well, that's awesome. And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah, I appreciate that, Marvin. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you carving a little bit of time out this evening to talk with me. Me too. It's been a privilege to be on here. And I hope, uh, I hope folks can get to know me a little bit better through the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Have a great evening. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review and rating in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to check out Norvice's new shank jaws at www.norhyphenvice.com. Tight lines, everybody.